Welcome one and all, I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with Agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. If you find value in listening, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. It is the very best way to hear about the latest episodes as they land. Enjoy the show. Right, we are good to go. Good evening. Uh, So I'm very happy to have Mike Cohen with me today. And Mike is actually one of the reasons that I began blogging. I love the the bite-sized, digestible content you produced, and it inspired me to, to create my own blog. So first things first, how are you, Mike? Doing well. I'm uh, where I'm at. It's finally starting to get some warm weather, and that's uh, that's always the good sign for me. So I'm well. Excellent. Um, and for those that haven't haven't come across Mike Cohen's work, Mike, would you mind giving yourself giving us uh, giving us a little bit of a, a background as to who you are and, and what you're about? Sure. I started out as a uh, you know typical scenario. Started out as a programmer, and you know kind of moved up to manager, director, VP in organizations. And when I started to manage projects, um, I needed a, a lightweight way of managing because I didn't want to give up being a programmer. And um, I went back and read a book that I'd bought called Wicked Problems, Righteous Solutions. This was the first book to talk about Scrum. That was in 1990. The book was 1990. I read it in 1994 and uh, October 1994 started on my first Scrum project. And, um, you know, so I can give nice stories about how I was looking for something to be more productive and better results and all that type of stuff. But the, the real truth is I wanted to stay being a programmer, right? So I needed something that was going to be kind of like, you know, lightweight. And that led me to uh, kind of find this scrum process in uh, October of 94. And then I, um, you know, I kind of worked in organization for a few more years after that, co-founded the Scrum Alliance with Ken Schwaber, um, taught the first certified Scrum Master course with him, first certified product owner course. And uh, since about uh, 2001 or something, I've been uh, just kind of coaching and consulting on how to um, kind of how to be an amazing team. You know, and mm-hmm. Agile is a big part of that, but it's more about, you know, just how to be a great team. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you for joining me today. And you yeah, have absolutely to wealth, wealth of experience to, to leverage there. Um, here's, here's my first question for you. I think you mentioned 2001. That's... Uh, that's an important year right now because it's it's 20 years on today we are since the the agile manifesto which kind of formalized yep. a lot of the learnings that people like yourselves and others have been crystallizing so my question is do you believe that the agile manifesto 20 years on is still fit for purpose in the in the modern era we are in today well i think I think it's one of those documents where if you got the same 17 folks together three months later, there would have been a different word or two, mm. right? I mean, you know, it's a document. It's never perfect. Um, but I don't, you know, I get a lot of these requests like, you know, hey, will you be part of our, you know, fun little side project? Let's rewrite the manifesto. Let's kind of, <laughs> you know, pretend we're, we're pretend we're doing it now. What would it say? And it's like, that's just not really interesting to me. It's like, yeah, we could we could take somebody's awesome draft and tweak a word. I mean, I can give you a couple of words to remove from it, but you know, we could tweak it, but it's like, it served its purpose. It really was a manifesto, right? Where it was this like rallying cry. And what I think it did is it brought people out of the woodwork that were already being kind of agile. And they said, oh, that's what I do. Mm. And I know that's what it was for me. Um, the, uh, the, week, the week after it happened, I got an email from Ward Cunningham. Ward Cunningham was one of the people there mm-hmm. and he had been doing some uh, consulting to a project I was on. And uh, he emailed me and said, Hey, look what I did last week. And he, you know, sent me a, the manifesto and the photo. And 
uh, it was awesome because that was how we were building products. But even though we were being successful, I had doubts because the only thing people were talking about was the rational unified process back then, the late 90s, early 2000s. That was literally the only thing. You either did no process at all or you did the unified process. And I didn't, and I felt guilty. And I kept thinking, it's like, I should get some time and kind of learn how we could make that work. Everybody's doing that. And then when the manifesto came out, it was, I could, I could point to and say, no, this is what I do. I value these things. And that's why we're not exactly the unified process. And I think they're just initially like thousands of people, you know, and then eventually hundreds of thousands or millions, but thousands of people initially looked at that and said, yeah, me too. And it gave us a, a point to focus on. So I think it was amazing for that. Could we change a word or two? Sure. So. Yeah. I think I would I would absolutely echo that. To me, the manifesto is a product of its time. It is mm -hmm. an artifact in history. Uh, my only concern I think I, I do have is sometimes people can approach it quite dogmatically. I've seen this out oh, in yeah. the wider industry. It's kind of a, you're not doing this and therefore you're not agile. That sort of approach, which I wouldn't say I'm a fan of. But in general, no. besides a few words that could be tweaked, you know, I think the, the common one is let's change it from software to product or service or something like that because it's more widely applicable these days than just software. Um, but in general, the values and principles, they still they still stand true. Um, for me, I, I often say that there's nothing, there's nothing that shouldn't be uh, absolved or considered for continuous improvement. And that includes the manifesto itself. So we should at least check it and say, you know, is it still fit? Is it still serving our purpose? It's still working for us. And we did do that as part of uh, the Agile 20 Reflect Festival not too long ago. A group of us, a group of people mm -hmm. in the, commu the community did, did do that activity. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's good to hear your, your thoughts on it as well. I think it's good to be aware of the document and write new ones. I've got a number of clients that will write their own manifesto. Um, you know, and they take that as the basis and they don't, I don't, most of them don't even use any of those four because those are like the starting point, but mm -hmm. then they write their own little manifesto. And, you know, it's like, here's what we believe in software. And it could be that, you know, we, we, we serve this audience over that, that audience, like, mm -hmm. you know, nerds over doctors or for a healthcare company, sure. whatever it is. Right. Um, but they come up with their own kind of manifesto for that. As for the software thing, you know, I don't think it would have had the impact if it were broader. Mm -hmm. um, these were 17 software folks who got together. So of course they were at a software manifesto. And to me, it was a, I know this wasn't deliberate, but it was the classic example of what's called a bowling pin strategy. Mm -hmm. A bowling pin strategy is where you're trying to, you know, if you want to own a big market, let's go over to Amazon, right? Um, they, they start with books, right? And they nail it. They got books. Perfect. Right. Yeah. And then I remember I used to buy CDs. I love music. And I used to buy CDs from a place called uh, CD now. And then I think CD universe was another one. Um, and then I remember the day Amazon got into books or got into CDs. I was like instantly all my CD purchasing switched, right? Because they had a bigger selection. They were faster. Mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't sometimes email me four days later and say it's out of stock, right? If it's out of stock, they'd tell me right then. And uh, that's a bowling pin strategy. And I think the Agile Manifesto, not deliberately, but was the same thing. Let's nail it. Let's get perfect in software, then move to product and maybe move to hardware, move to marketing, right? Now we see it everywhere because you're right. It does apply. But it's always a little bit different in those different domains. Absolutely, and I think this is this is where the value in is it for, for me is if someone or a company, an organization takes that as a starting point, but then evolves it for their own needs. Whether that means tweaking certain language to fit their situation, I think the challenge can be. And again, this is an observation from what I've seen in the wider industry. There is a there's a tendency from some to just emulate the success of others oh, yeah. and just copy and paste onto their own situation and expect it to work. 
Uh, and I often use the phrase innovate, don't replicate. Don't just copy the latest Spotify <laughs> model, right? Try, yeah, yeah use, it, use it as a starting point, maybe, um, but try and find what works for you because the biggest variable I find is that you've got different people and they're the most important part of that, that, that mm -hmm. equation there. You need to take into account their needs and, and their situation. So, yeah. Absolutely, 100% agreed on that. I always tell my clients that if I'm training them, if I come back in a month, I want to see you doing what I just told you, right? Don't change things, do what I just told you. But then I say, if I come back in a year, you better not be doing what I told you today, right? <laughs> you know, maybe half of it, but you know, you better have found some changes that are right for you. You know, screw it, we're not doing stories or screw it, we're having a longer sprint or whatever it is, change something because you got to make it your own. Sure. Uh, speaking of stories, that, that's often a, a theme I see in your blogs. You're a, a major proponent of writing good user stories. So what would you say in your experience is the biggest, I guess, pitfall or challenge or anti-pattern that people face when using user stories. I know you. I know you're asking that because I just mentioned stories, but I'm wondering if you would have asked even if I hadn't, because it's such a perfect tie to what we're just talking about, which is zealously following the manifesto, right? Mm. You know, and you get people that learn about stories, and I'll get these, I'll get emails from somebody who's like, "Hi, I'm doing this system," and they'll describe something that is has no users. Um, the typical thing, you know, it's it's going to take months to build anything, and they're like, "Yeah, how do we write user stories? We have no users." And it's like, you don't, right? and it's like we don't need everything to be a user story, and we don't need everything to follow the same user story template. That mm. you know, th these are these are great ideas, but they're not something that fits for everything. And so it's it's the exact same issue you're describing with a manifesto. It's too uh, zealously following something and saying, you know, we have to do this. And um, I've been trying to, um, I feel like I've been spending a lot of my time recently advocating for job stories, which are just yeah, yeah. You know, kind of a var variation on user stories. And they're, I mean, they're literally two thirds the same. Um, like the user story says who's going to do it and what they're going to do. A job story says when it's happening. And, um, you know, that's appropriate for, for some opportunities, right? But I'll go into projects where I'll look at a backlog and they'll have a hundred items in a row in a backlog that all start with as a user, as a user, as a user. And it's like, guys, didn't you find this kind of tedious? It's like, yeah, but we knew we needed stories on the backlog. It's like, <laughs> no. And if it was tedious, you might've stopped and thought, what could we do instead? And, you know, either just leave it out or use the job story technique. But to me, it's the biggest thing is just getting too addicted and thinking everything has to be a story or everything has to follow one common template. Yeah. I see that a lot. To me, to me, agile in general, and I'm I'm personally ascribed to agile agnosticism. So I'm not any. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't subscribe to Scrum, any of the other is in particular. What I I look to do is help a help a client of mine find what works for them, and that might be practicing a bit of Scrum, practicing a bit of Kanban, XP, whatever that may be. Yeah. Experimenting until they find what works for them, and that could actually be a mishmash of all of them together. It, it borrows tenants from here, yes. borrow tenants from there. It probably is in most circumstances, yeah. but use those as a starting point. And this is why Agile for me, I like there's a there's a visual out there called the Deloitte um, Subway or Tube Map. And it basically has like mm. a, a Tube Map visual. Upon yep. each of the stations, there is there is a flavor of, of Scrum <laughs> and, and Agile. And I, I like that visual because to me, it demonstrates what Agile is, which is like a, a toolbox of options, things you can leverage for a given situation. You won't have to use all of them. You might find that actually you try this one, doesn't work for you. You try a different one. That's that's where I think uh, iterative improvement and continuous improvement lies because you try something, find out if it works. And if it doesn't, don't keep investing in it. Absolutely. But you know, if you think about what I'm known for, the two things I'm most known for are 
advocating for user stories and for story points. I didn't invent mm -hmm. either of those ideas. They both come from extreme programming. The third thing I'm known for is kind of being a scrum guy. So I'm a scrum guy who's mostly known for two non-scrum things. <laughs> and so I, I'm I'm about taking good ideas wherever I find them, which is why when you kind of asked me to introduce myself, I said, it's about making good teams great. It wasn't about, you know, let's go be agile, right? Yeah. Agile is kind of the way these days to make good teams great. Um, but once the whole world is agile, if that ever happens, but once we've all kind of got that base level, I still want to be helping good teams be great with whatever techniques we discover then. I think that's a great mission. I don't think I don't think I'll succeed, but it's just kind of like the, you know, it's just kind of like the goal is out there. It's like, you know, it's not about agile. It's about helping helping teams be good. You know, your comment about picking things from wherever they are is fits with something I've thought for years, which is that I want agile to go away. Um, I want it to stop being something we talk about. I want it to just be um, how we write, how we build products, right? I'm, I'm software guy, so I think software, but it's like how we build products. And the example I give often is that I remember back in the, it would have been the 90s, early, early to mid 90s, people would talk about, oh, we're doing an object-oriented design meeting today um, because objects were a new thing. And so we would say, I'm going to the OO design meeting or something. And nobody says that anymore. I'm, oh, we got a design meeting this afternoon, right? And I want it to kind of be the same way where Agile is just kind of one, it's what we do and we don't have to talk about it. And we get back to talking about various little sub practices within it, right? Hey, you know, we're going to learn more about uh, continuous delivery. Right? That's our big goal this month or something like that or this quarter. So I want to get more to those practices rather than the overall frameworks that people talk about today. Okay. Interesting. Now to get to get to those those practices where people aren't talking about agile, what would your what would your tip be to any, I guess, agile coaches, scrum masters, anyone leading agility? What would your advice be to them? to try and instill that sort of environment, that those behaviors? I think the biggest one, I think the big one is kind of what I said about myself when I'm doing it is like, hey guys, do it this way for a while, mm -hmm. right? You know, because you don't know if it's, you don't know if it's a good practice, you don't know if it's a good practice for you until you do it for a while, right? Mm -hmm. And there, there are good, smart people in this industry, right? And if you tell a team something, I think that deserves a whole lot of credibility, right? They should listen, right? If I tell them I, something, they've been doing this a long time, you should listen to this. Um, I don't think they have to do what we advise them, right? But they should give it some credit, right? You should think about it and go, hey, here's a guy who's been around. I, I should think about this. And I actually like it if they give it a try, right? Just give this a try. You know, you're asking for advice, give this a try. But then start thinking for yourself, right? Think for yourself, is this a good thing and does it fit with what we do because it's you know i hate always going back to the manifesto because i don't think it's that type of document where we have to bring everything back to the manifesto but you know you mentioned the idea you were talking about you know it's, it's your people right mm -hmm. which is obviously makes me think of people over process and tools or in, individuals over process and tools and so it is that right we've got to build the right process for us and all that you and I can share or any other coach can share with a company or a team is, hey, I've worked with X number of teams and 85% of them, this is the way to go. Um, is that the way to go for this team? I don't know yet. I can give them educated guesses, but they have to decide that. And so one of the things I see with coaches is where they either fall into a trap of expecting everything they say to be followed or coaches in particular fall into a trap of just kind of, of just trying to coach, of just asking the team, well, what do you think about that, right? And I'm really big on the idea of mentoring being part of it as well. And a coach that has been there, done that, should answer questions occasionally. 
not just sit back and say, well, let's talk it through. What would be the advantage of that? What would be the disadvantages, right? You know, there are times where I just want, I just want to know what I should do. And I, th- I see a lot of coaches that miss out on that mentoring opportunity. They shift too much into the coaching side of things. Well, of course, context and the situation is key, right? So if you've got a, a team that hasn't seen what good looks like before, they don't know, they're just looking for a bit of help and guidance, then that's an opportunity to step back and be a bit more prescriptive and say, why don't you start with this? Why don't we yeah. see how it goes in a few weeks' time, a few months' time, and then we'll pivot accordingly. What I what I often aim to do whenever I'm working with a team in that situation is let them know that we're going to start with something, but it's not fixed. It's not permanent. It's, it's, yeah. not, it's not immutable. It's just a starting point. And together we'll explore what works and what doesn't work because what we're going to do is we're going to reflect on it iteratively and see how it goes and i find by doing that one it can get people a bit more open to trying new things because they they don't feel like they're just having something prescribed to them uh, and that it's final and that's that's their way of working because obviously a lot of teams have faced that before as well where something oh we're just going to introduce this and it becomes their default way of working for for the rest of time but i find by introducing that way it uh, tends to land a lot better. The other, the other challenge, and it's actually something I'm keen to ask you about, is when you, you see a situation where a, a team will say, well, we're, we're too busy to do that. We're too busy to change, <laughs> right? We're too busy to change. We, we can't invest in doing that meeting or we can't invest in doing that ceremony. We, we're too busy to retrospect as an example. I've seen that before. Uh, my response to that is often to, to leverage one of my favorite quotes that Einstein said. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. So if you're going to say that you're unhappy with how you currently are, but you aren't going to commit to changing a few variables, odds are you're going to be talking about these same frustrating things in a few weeks' time or the next time you have this discussion anyway. So you've got to do something. And I'm I'm keen to hear how how you would respond to a situation where a team says, oh, we're too busy to do that. Too busy to change. Yeah, I see that all the time. One of the things that I liked about the old capability maturity model, the CMM, and a lot, it's, you know, it's very common to kind of, you know, disparage the capability maturity model because it's a little bit more, a little bit skewed towards kind of a waterfallish process was how it measured process maturity. It had five levels of maturity, and level one was just chaos, right? You just you don't have a process. You just, you know, heroes. You just you just go code and try to make the product successful. Um, the level two, I think they call it defined. Um, which is where you just kind of start to define what your process is. And here's why I'm mentioning them. One of the things I loved about their level one, level two distinction is they said, you really know you're at level two when a crisis hits and you stick with it. And I see that same issue with agile teams to say, we're going to go agile. We're going to go agile. We got to be faster. We got to get better products. We're going to go agile. And then a crisis hits, you know, maybe they're behind on a deadline and they start saying things like, okay, we don't have time for sprint reviews anymore. We don't have time for daily standups. Right. And when you see that, it's a team that is, they don't really, they haven't bought into it yet. They don't Mm -hmm. really believe it. If they believed it, when there was a crisis, they'd double down and do more of it, Mm -hmm. right? They'd really go, you know, it's like, oh, crap, we got to do twice a day stand-ups where, you know, there's a crisis. I don't know that that'd be a good idea, but, you know, they double down on it. They do more of it. And so I look at that as a test for how a team is going to respond when there's a crisis. And often when I go into an engagement, I'll ask about past crises like that. You know, you know, tell me about a time when you guys were really under the gun or there was a critical deadline. What what happened? And it'd be like, oh, we, you know, company canceled all vacation, company did this. It's like, okay, that tells me some of the some of the problems that we've got. And I think this is back to the, the you know, this whole conversation is about this idea of not taking it to um, too zealously. You can look at it and go, this is what I got to do, but 
you got to make changes. You, you cannot just do something by the book forever. Mm. So. Interesting. Right. I forgot to ask this earlier, and I'm going to make sure I don't forget to ask <laughs> it now, because I can see the, the logo in your top, Mountain Goat Software. Yeah. What prompted that name? Where did that come from? What's the origin story? I've actually got a real good story for that. Um, there's an author, Tom Gilb, um, who I think is probably the original Agile guy. He wrote a book called Principles of Software Engineering Management in 1989. And in his book, he advocated for, um, I, I think the exact quote was something like, you know, you should break every project into at least 50 iterations. Now, put some context around, you know, 1989, right? You know, systems were big. And so when he said do at least 50 iterations, he was thinking about kind of like a year long or longer project and, you know, kind of like weekly iterations. And this isn't exactly true, but I kind of have the impression that people looked at that and said, what a nutcase, right? You know, he's going to run week long iterations on a banking system. And um, he, in his book, Principles of Software Engineering Management, he had each page had a little call out, a little like sidebar with something in there, a principle. One principle was the Norwegian skier principle. I think that was something like, you know, if you fall down, get back up, right? You know, you got a problem, keep going. And one principle was the Mountain Goat principle. And the Mountain Goat principle in the book said something like, um, make sure each hoof is firmly planted as you climb step-by-step step up the rocky hillside. And step-by-step step was iterations, firmly planted, but well-tested. And when I started the company, um, we were doing software for law firms. We were a contract development shop. We had a lot of law firms as clients initially. And um, we talked about with some of the some of the guys that started this with me was, if we ever screw up, our law firms are going to sue us just for fun, right? I mean, you know, you know, you mess up on a project for a lawyer, they're going to have like the, you know, the intern, hey, go file a lawsuit, just get some practice, right? Mm. And so we're like, we better never screw up. And so we decided we work in really short iterations, and we would test things like crazy, so that our clients would always be happy. And um, it ended up being a great way to build software, right? And so we had started doing that, I think it was 92, we'd start building software that way, which is why kind of when Agile came around, it was like, all ready to kind of go whole hog into that. But so it started from that, that reference in, in Tom Gilb's book. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Wasn't yeah. aware of that good story. Like it. <laughs> right. We it's are... nice when there's a story instead of like, there was the only URL I could get, right? <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm conscious of time and uh, very keen to move us towards the, the final portion of our, our conversation today. And uh, it wouldn't be, for me, the end of a good conversation without talking about retrospectives. Retrospectives are my absolute favorite Agile ceremony. Uh, the reason being, it's just that great opportunity to reflect on progress, to celebrate the great things, to talk about what we can improve. And I have I basically made a mission this year to create 52 new retro themes. And that could be anything from Daft Punk to, I, I did a, um, a Ramadan themed one this week for the Muslim, oh, nice. Muslim culture. And so the question I have is, what's your favorite retrospective format? And yeah, we'll cover the next one after that. You know, it's not going to be a very fun one. Um, I love it when teams mix it up. And one of the things I like when teams do is kind of rotate who has to come up with the different retrospective sure. technique, right? You know, it's like, it's my turn next week. It's your turn the week after that. And, but you know, but they all boil down to, at least in my opinion, you're the expert on this, but they all boil down to some variation of like, what could we get better at, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that is the question. And so they're all just kind of different, fun, different ways of doing that. 
and I'm probably not very fun. So um, when when I get into retrospectives, it's normally very much just you know a start stop continuous. Sure. And I like being much more action oriented. That's why I've always been an advocate of that one. It's the one I started doing decades ago. And I'm and this is I, I mean I'm talking about weaknesses myself, but I'm not very much into the let's talk about how we feel about things, right? Um, it's like, what did we do wrong? You know, what can we be better at? What should we stop doing? What's wasting time? Mm -hmm. And you know, what, what's, what do we want to keep on a continuous? That's not a habit yet. So we want to keep some focus on it. So really simple for me. I just kind of do that, but I love participating in ones where somebody else has added some creativity to it. So I've been sure. following yours on LinkedIn and you know, you've had a, you've had great ones all year. So, um, I love what you're doing with those. And so, you know, I mean, I, this isn't much of a criticism, but I mean, sure. Some of those work great and others are like, Oh, that was a bust. Right. Um, and I love, I don't care if it's a bust. I love that it was different. Right. So, you know, I, I like the variety of it because mm. one of the challenges with retros is they do get tedious the way I just described doing it. So, and that's, that's one of the drivers behind why I mix up the, the themes, the formats it's because in my, my experience, um, retrospectives can get stale. It can cause people yeah. to disengage. They can switch off. They can either mention the same things or they just, oh, it's another retro again. And the same sort of things are discussed. Whereas by refreshing the format, the style of asking questions, using metaphor, using music, whatever that may be, getting people mm -hmm. thinking a little bit differently, I find can keep people engaged, which um, for me is, is can be a bit more of a challenge in, in a remote setting when you've got pings here, here and everywhere, and you're not face to face with someone. So it can be easy to switch off. So mixing up the, the styles has been a big drive for me. And actually the, the feedback I get from people keeps me doing it. I get people saying, oh, you did, we yeah. did this Diwali theme retrospective and the, and the, the Indian um, team, they, they loved the fact that it was a non-Western one and they, and they, they kept engaged and they loved it. And so I say, we did the Star Trek one or the Home Alone <laughs> one at Christmas that there's just all sorts of different styles that just keep people yeah. and they end up looking forward to the next one. And they, and then message me asking what the next one is and things like that. So the next question I have for you is if if you could add any themed retro to my backlog, what would it be? Ooh. I don't know. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you two things that first popped into my mind. One was... Um, First thing that popped into my mind was baseball, but then your comment about being more international, about being Western, and maybe that's just because I'm a baseball fan. I don't know what that would be like, but then for some reason, the next one that popped into my mind was I was talking to uh, a friend uh, two days ago on, on Tuesday, and the big joke is like Taco Tuesday, and so I was thinking about one where it was like tacos, and what would I put on the taco to make it better? What would I put on the taco to make yeah, it worse or okay. something, right? Uh, I'm sure I can work with that. <laughs> I'm not the guy for these ideas. That's you. That's um, yeah, that's, that's I, am, <laughs> I am not. I am not creative in that way. So um, that's not for me. I do want to. If, if you have a minute, I want to tell you a story about retros, um, and it'd be another story that makes me sound bad. Go for um, it. <laughs> I'm happy to make happy to make myself sound bad. Um, you know, actually, I'm be serious on that for a second. I think it's always really important for people to admit when they've been wrong on something or when they've changed their minds and. Um, people don't do that. They just, you know, it's like, oh, I can't ever admit I was wrong, right? It's, I'll look weak if I ever admit I was wrong. I was opposed, like flat out adamantly opposed to adding retrospectives to Scrum. Um, they did not exist in Scrum at the beginning. Um, and I didn't want them. I didn't think they belonged in, in Scrum. I'm totally wrong, but here's why. Here's why I didn't want them. Um, think about it this way, Chris. Like, so, you know, you're gearing up to do this big retrospective in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I'm th we're three days into the sprint. And I notice a way the team can get better. 
why should I wait seven days to share that with the team? I right. I, I should walk, I should walk in that day and share it with the team. And that was my argument. That was why I didn't want retro. It's like, no, if, if you've got a way to get better, you share it right then. Well, the reason I was wrong, my I could be wrong about my reason I was wrong, but my theory on why I was wrong is because people wouldn't do it. Right. They don't, you know, I don't want to interrupt the progress. We're barely going to finish the sprint. I don't want to have a half hour meeting about this possibly good improvement, right? Let's, you know, you talk about it, we're too busy to improve. Um, and so I don't bring it to the team. And then we get seven days later, the retrospective, you're hosting. And I'm like, darn, I had something really good we should get better at, but I can't remember what it was. I thought of it earlier in the sprint. And so I completely changed my mind about that. And I wasn't the only one at the beginning. That was a, there was a lot of debate about that in uh, probably would have been about 2003, four when, when retrospectives really came into Scrum. So. Well, firstly, thank you for demonstrating vulnerability, admitting you're wrong. Again, <laughs> not enough people do that. I, there's a big, there's a big thing out there where uh, failure is still stigmatized and mistakes are stigmatized and we need to, we need to remove that. I'm a big fan of the, the failure swap shop concept where you, you get others to talk about where things went wrong so that you can learn from others. And there's just, there's just an, even yeah. fellow coaches are sometimes reluctant to, to participate in that. So it's definitely something we need to work on, but thank you for sharing the story. Uh, I'm, yeah. I, I, I like what you said there about the, re, the the main rationale for you not being on board was it just wasn't fast enough a feedback loop. And actually some teams I've worked with, they prefer to, do you know what? They have a, a standing location where they can just add retro items yeah. as they go along. And if it's important enough, they can, they can action it sooner rather than waiting. You know, the reason for not liking retros in your instance was just it wasn't quick enough as opposed to the actual objective of it wasn't wasn't right. Well, and think about what, what that means for what we've been talking about for this, this half hour, right? That might mean that maybe I'm right in the long run, right? Maybe as everybody gets even better and better and better at Agile 20 years from now, right? Um, 20 years from now, the standard is that we stop doing end of sprint retrospectives and we just improve continuously, right? I mean, it is better. My view, it doesn't happen, right? Um, and I think that's what we've seen with sprint reviews as well, right? A lot of teams have moved away from sprint reviews as a big formal thing at the end of the sprint. And they do a one at a time feature review. Hey, yeah. We're done with this one feature, show it to the three users who asked about it, put it out, right? Yeah. And so I think that's been part of the, the whole speed up thing. And that's kind of like a change that I'd like in the scrum world where we start, where we stop taking that type of stuff religiously, right? Where it's gotta be, thou must do a, a review. Mm. No, how about thou must get feedback, right? Yeah, you um, know, yeah. As often as you can. My, right? my favorite so. fav my favorite metric is days since last user engagement. And that to me is mm. keep, keep that number of days as low as possible. And that keeps you anchored to your users. You're constantly getting that fast feedback loop. That to me is far more important than velocity or anything else out there. Keeping you anchored to your users. There we go. Right. That's a great metric. I'm going to start tracking that too. I'll try that with some teams. That's a good one. Thanks. Give it a go. Right. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Wonderful speaking with you today. Yeah. Thank you for sharing with the community and uh, all the best. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed being here. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.